The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. All right. Is the volume good for you? I wonder if we could turn it down a little bit. Still work. Let's see. Does that still work okay for you? Okay. Works for me also. Sometimes I hear a little... If I hear myself too much, then I want to stop and listen. Okay, so <clears throat> this evening I'm going to continue on the series that I'm talking about, which is the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And uh, today we're going to start uh, discussing the fourth foundation, which is the foundation of the dharmas. And I'll explain what this means, the dharmas. But I want to say some introductory words about uh, this practice of mindfulness and the sequence of these four foundations of mindfulness. That uh, there are two important ways that mindfulness works, in a sense. One is that it works right away. It kind of, it's, it's kind of instant benefits. And the other is, is that, that it works in time. It's involved in a progressive sequence of deepening practice, maturing practice. And both sides of this are important. The, the um, first one, that it works instantly, is one of the great pleasures of uh, the practice. That there's something about a moment of mindfulness, when we really understand mindfulness itself, that um, is deeply satisfying. There's something, there's a degree of liberation or freedom to be found because a moment of clear mindfulness, there's going to be no or very little clinging or grasping or resistance or contraction. There might be, all around it there might be clinging and contraction, but in the moment, if, you, if it's mindfulness is really clear, in that moment it's kind of like for the moment the windshield wipers have cleared the, the rain off the windshield and you know it's not going to last but for that you know for a moment you can see clearly out and um, when I first realized this in my practice I made me very happy and um, but to come to that clarity of the seeing the momentary kind of power of mindfulness sometimes it takes um, the second benefit of mindfulness and that is the practice of mindfulness grows over time. And uh, initially it might not be so obvious that it's so beneficial right away, the instant benefits, but as the practice of mindfulness slowly grows with time, the, the present moment clarity of awareness of mindfulness stands out and um, higher and higher. 
the way that the four foundations of mindfulness are presented, they're presented uh, sequentially as a path that unfolds and deepens as one, d- one does it. And um, the path begins in this famous teaching of the Buddha. The first instruction is to put aside greed and distress for the world. So in order to do the practice, it says first, put aside greed and distress from the world, which is very confusing for people who come to the practice because they're consumed with greed and distress and they want to practice mindfulness so they can become free of it. And then the first thing you're told is, put it aside. (laughs) But I don't know how to do that. I thought I was going to practice mindfulness to learn to do that. So the way that I understand this instruction is that um, in order to really deepen in in this practice, especially in meditation, um, we have to be willing temporarily to put aside our concerns with the world. Temporarily uh, put aside the mind's tendency to go outward into the world to think about the things that we want and to think about the things that we're upset about. And, you know, the world has plenty of things if you like to be greedy and upset. Uh, you have no shortage of things to get upset about and greedy about or want. And there can be fantastic reasons to justify doing that. And so, you know, but in order to do this practice, there has to be at least temporarily an attempt to put it aside, to somehow separate yourself from a concern with the world around you. Some people will strongly complain, protest, that somehow this is a world-rejecting aspect of Buddhism, that somehow we have to turn away from the world in order to really kind of clean the mind or develop the mind in some deep way. People complain, but no one, I think no one complains when you say, I have to go into the bathroom by myself and take a shower, and you do it alone. You know, you you shut out the world, (laughs) you know, and, and, uh, you know, you're not available to anyone, and it's it's really, you know, and and we benefit, the whole world benefits if we... (laughs) So... It's a little bit similar, you know, so it's a temporary thing in meditation to be willing to put aside, and, and it's not an easy thing to do, but there has to at least, be, at least be the understanding that this is the direction we're going, so that we're no longer, temporarily, but we're no longer intending to keep thinking about our concerns about the world, the past, the future, what's outside of us, what's going on, that temporarily we're willing to have our intention be to be really present here for our ex- immediate present moment experience, temporarily put, put aside our concerns for the world um, so that um, we can find out what's going on here when, we, you know, when the rain isn't filling the windshield. Because we're always preoccupied and concerned, we can't see so well. So this turning inward and then as we turn inward to our experience here, the first foundation has to do about the most obvious thing for most people, if you're aware of kind of the really present moment experiences, you're here in a body, or it's the most accessible for some people. And so the first foundation of mind, mindfulness is to really notice you're here, you're here in a body, and this is what the bodily experience is like. As we do that, there tends to be a relaxation of the body, the actual instructions are to actually relax your body as you do this practice. 
So relax and settle in further. Really be here for the bodily experience. As we settle in to the bodily experience, then we become uh, more aware of the second foundations of mindfulness, which is what it feels like to be in the body, what it feels like to be here in the present moment. And this is the second foundation of mindfulness is the feeling tone of the experience. We start noticing more acutely, this is pleasant and this is unpleasant. Wow, I didn't know I was feeling so bad. (laughs) I was so caught up and concerned with my greed and distress for the world that I didn't actually know, feel the impact it had on me and how I actually feel kind of off or stressed by that. Or we start feeling, noticing we feel good. It's very pleasant. Maybe as we relax deeper and deeper, there's a pleasantness that arises. And um, then, um, as we do this, we uh, settle in further into this. And at some point, as we, as we really get more and more here, then we become, start becoming aware of our mind state. If you have a very loud mind state, you might be aware of it quickly. But uh, to really kind of tune in and settle in and kind of be aware of the mood or the general state of mind you're in is, uh, is more subtle than the feeling tone, just generally if it's pleasant or unpleasant, or more subtle than the body. So we become aware that the general mood or attitude of the mind is, uh, is greedy or generous or um, hostile, aversive, or friendly, or we're confused or deluded, or we have clarity and we see clearly what's true. We start seeing the mind is contracted, or the mind state is more expansive, spacious, sometimes feeling like it's boundless. So we start seeing something by quality of the, of the mind or the heart. And as I said uh, last week, the quality of our heart, the quality of our mind, the inner quality of our state of being is one of the most important resources or treasures that we have. And to become the custodian of your own inner well-being is part of the task of this practice. And so to really settle in and know the quality, know what's happening inside your state of being. How's your state of being? How's your spirits? How are you inside? Is important for this sequence of deepening that goes on or growing of the practice. As we start becoming aware more and more of the quality of our inner life, it's at this point that we start seeing the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is a foundation of mindfulness of the dharmas. And um, there's a lot of ink that's been spilled trying to define what dharmas are in this context. And um, some people just prefer to call it, leave it as the dharmas. One of the meaning of dharma is truth. And uh, it could be perhaps, I think, that this is the foundation we start seeing the truth as opposed to seeing the facts. The first three foundations are kind of like seeing the facts of things, how things actually are in and of themselves. We just see the body, we see the feelings, we're aware of the mind state. And there's no judgment or evaluation of it, just this is how it is right now. With a a fourth foundation, um, it's more understanding the processes of the mind that contribute to our mind state that contribute to the quality of our inner state of being. So it's even going deeper in to the, uh, to the operating software for how we operate. And there's two general operating software that can operate in our system. 
And there's one that leads to suffering and the other that leads to freedom and happiness. And so we want to really see these and become aware of how these operate, these principles. And so the fourth foundation of mindfulness is knowing the processes by which we get caught in in suffering and the processes by which we become free of suffering. And so there are three exercises in this foundation about noticing how you get caught and two, noticing how you get free. Now, that's lopsided, right? There's more emphasis on how you get caught than how you become free. And I don't know if it was planned this way, but I like it that way because uh, it's more important to understand how you're caught than how to get free. Uh, In a little bit, the process of becoming free, seeing that process, it's a little bit the byproduct of no longer being caught. And so we want to become really wise about the processes of the mind, how we get attached, how we get hooked in, how we get contracted, how we get uh, caught in attachments. And uh, this is a little bit like the bad news. You know, you're being asked to pay attention to the bad news inside of you, the kind of your, your shortcomings where you get caught. But the hope is that as you deepen in this practice, you start seeing it as good news that you can see how you get caught. And it's actually inspiring to see, look at that, that's greed. And I saw it. And now I can work with it. Now I can find the freedom from it. As opposed to, oh no, my hate. I shouldn't be hating. Good Buddhists don't hate. You know, I'll, go, I'll go sit in the back of the hall. No one notices. You know, or, or I'll just kind of, you know, paint it over so that, you know, you know I pretend it's not there. But the rather is to see how these things operate, turn towards them and appreciate that by doing that you don't give in to them but that yes now you can work with it now you can find your freedom and relationship to it so you stop and really look at how how the mind works how this operates so the first of these uh, so there's five exercises five different areas processes to pay attention to and the first one could be said to be the most important for uh, vipassana students for people who do mindfulness practice and if you go on a mindfulness retreat, it's uh, almost uh, every retreat, uh, traditionally, there's a talk on the hindrances at some point, or there's mention of them. The five hindrances is the first process that we study, the first dharma process, first truth that we start noticing. And we start noticing, these hindrances are, the word hindrance in the original language of Pali means to cover over. In English, it became the hindrances, they cover over or they hinder our capacity for wisdom, they hinder or or obstruct or cover over our insight, and they hinder our capacity to have clear, stable, concentrated mindfulness, to really be here and pay careful attention. And so uh, the windshield has to somehow become clear enough to see, and the hindrances are the rain, maybe, or or, I don't know, the boulders. There's a boulder with this last week right up on Lake Tahoe and the freeway. So there's the boulders in front of our way and we have to kind of see them And because if you don't see the boulders in front of you, you there's going to be an accident. And the hindrances are accident-prone phenomena in our minds. They cause a lot of suffering. There's five of them. Um, there's actually seven, 
but uh, there's uh, two pairs that are considered kind of in the same category. So there's um, uh, greed, strong desire. There is uh, aversion or ill will, ill will. There is sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and doubt. Those are the five. So these are the five. If you're going to do this practice, you should memorize this list. And uh, because you want to kind of begin to, you know, when you sit down to meditate, you want to be able to notice when one or the other are operating. If you're lucky, the only one operates at once at at a time. (laughs) Sometimes there's multiple hindrance attacks. So you want to be able to recognize them because in the recognition, the clear recognition is where we begin finding our freedom from them. The clearer the recognition, the less that you're in them. It's kind of like stepping back and seeing it as opposed to being in it and having it control you and run you or, or influence you. So, but you can't really recognize it that way, that in a way that's freeing, unless you learn to pay attention to it and learn to recognize it. So I would recommend those of you who are really interested in this practice, uh, memorize this, this list of five. The, um, there's a beautiful analogy given for uh, the five hindrances. And uh, it's an analogy of a bowl of water that uh, you can lean over and you know, if, if the water is really still and pure, uh, you can lean over and, and see a reflection of your face in it. So in the ancient world, I guess mirrors were not that common, so they used water to see, and so you know, they had these mirror bowls, maybe. However, if you put a red dye into the, the water, uh, you don't see clearly. There's a lot of red dye, you don't see at all, because you can't, there's no reflection. And that's supposed to be like um, uh, greed or sensual desire, strong desire. It's like everything's colored with my desire. You don't really see accurately. Or if you uh, take the bowl and you boil the water and the top of it is boiling, like, you know, bubbles, you're not going to be able to see if you have the mirror effect. You can't see either. And that's what it's like when the mind is consumed with ill will. It's boiling over and it doesn't see clearly. Um, then you have the bowl where the water is covered with algae. And so it's just like a you know, thick, thick algae. You know, it's kind of like nothing moves because it's so thick. And that's when the, the mind is with sloth and torpor. Tiredness and lethargy. Um, and then the fourth analogy is that of this bowl of water that um, the wind is blowing and churning up the water and spinning it and maybe in a little bowl there's, you know, white, you know, whitewash or, you know, just, you know. And that also you can't see because it's all churned up from the wind. And that's like agitation and worry. The mind is all agitated and, you know, so you can't see clearly. And then the last one is you kind of fill the bowl with mud thick gooey mud you know and um, if you try to walk the bowl is big enough for like a pool you try to walk through it it's just like so hard to walk through it and that's um, the mind that's full of doubt 
It just, you can't get anywhere. You can't see anything accurately. You don't know what's going on. It's all murky. And you, every step is kind of like so hard to do. So that's one analogy for them. Another analogy is what it's like to become free of them. And it said that when you become free of um, greed or strong sensual desire, it's like uh, becoming free of debt. Somehow you're, if you're kind of, uh, you know, if you're in debt, you're obligated to act and to pay it back and to do something, I guess. And so it feels really good to be free of debt. In the same way, it feels really good to be free of being caught in sensual desire, strong desire. Um, to be free of illness is to be free of ill will. Because you're not, you know, you know with a strong anger and ill will, uh, we, we talk about having a fever, we're all hot. And it's kind of like a dis, dis-ease uh, when we're f- consumed by ill will. And, um, the story of, I don't know, in the 1800s, an uh, English physician who um, had such a problem with anger that he said, the, the next person who makes me angry, angry is going to be the death of me. And I don't know if it was the next person, but sure enough, at some point, he had a heart attack from his, you know, when he got caught up in his fury he had. And, um, and then um, to be free of sloth and torpor is to be uh, free, get free of prison. Because something if you're kind of too lethargic, too caught in your kind of tiredness and boredom and lethargy, it's like you can't, you're kind of stuck on your couch or something. You can't get out of your house, out of bed. And so you um, can't do anything. And so to be free of that is to be out of prison. Then the Buddha said to be free of... Um, Restlessness and worry is to be free of slavery. Because if there's a lot of restlessness and worry, it kind of consumes you, takes you over, and you're walking around in circles or kind of just can't sit still, or it drives you, and you're not in charge. And so, so it's kind of you're a slave to your restlessness and worry. And then the doubt is to be free, let's see. Um, Oh, yes. Doubt is to be free of, uh, to, have, to have escaped or crossed over a dangerous desert. So you're kind of parched in, when there's doubt, maybe. But it's dangerous to live in the world of doubt, and you could end up just kind of fading away or get, getting dehydrated and dying or something. I don't know. But uh, when you're out of the wilderness, you're out of the desert, um, that's when you're, you no longer have doubt. So it feels pretty good. So these analogies are great analogies for one, I think, for a particular reason. And that is that each of these things, when you're free of them, uh, prison, slavery, illness, death, all these things, I think uh, it's a fairly common phenomenon for people to be happy, at least initially. Ah, finally, I'm out of prison. This is good. (laughs) Finally, I'm no longer in debt. This is great. I'm not sick. Because one of the functions... Or one of the one of the things we want to avail ourselves in this practice, the Buddha pointed to over and over again, is when you become free of these hindrances, allow yourself to be delighted. Because the delight, the, the well-being, the joy of no longer being caught in them, 
nourishes and feeds the deepening of the practice. And then it's more interesting to want to let go of them or become free of them because you know that that there's something better happening than being in them. And the better thing is to feel delight and free and happy and kind of just more settled. Uh, It's a great feeling not to be caught by the hindrances. So in the practice of mindfulness then, at some point you start seeing that underneath the mind state, some of the mind states are the hindrances. The mind state of, that's in the early, in the, in the third foundations of mindfulness, you're supposed to know the, the mind state, the, the general inner state of being that's, cons- that's more um, characterized by greed or lust as being a mind state of lust or greed. In the, under the hindrances, you start seeing how the factor, the quality, the working of greed in the mind is the very thing that then, if it's strong enough, colors the whole mood. In the third foundation, you see when the mind is consumed with ill will. In the fourth foundation, in the hindrances, the second hindrance, you see the working of ill will, the movement of grasping, of pushing, of hate, of hostility, of aversion. You actually see how that activity of the mind is happening as opposed to the general mood. Because if you start seeing the particular activity of the mind, what you're doing in the mind, then you can start becoming free of it. You can let go of it. You can relax it. You can start taking responsibility for it. If it's just a generalized mood, it's not so clear what to do. You know, you can distract yourself maybe. But you can't, you don't know what to do. So this fourth foundation is a very important one. We start seeing how the mind operates. With the hindrances, it's very powerful just to see them and step back, see their presence, step back from them, see them more clearly. And that that's in, uh, encourages this processing of, process of deepening in mindfulness. But the Buddha didn't stop there. The instructions are also to see if they're present and then understand what are, how is it they arise? And what does it take to let go of them? And what does it take to prevent them from arising again in the future? And so here is where the wisdom begins to operate. So this is the fourth foundation called the dharmas. It's also the wisdom factor, the truth, how things work. And we start seeing that not just that the hindrances are present, we get wise about what are the conditions that brought them about. So it might be, for example, that you're really stressed or really lonely or feel really kind of empty in some way. And so um, and in, in, rea- in rea- reaction to that, to comfort yourself or distract yourself, we go look for some kind of sensual pleasure, some kind of you know, object of you know, desire. It could be uh, you know, a whole range of things. It could be food, it could be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be sex, it could be pornography, it could be TV, it could be the computer, it could be all kinds of things that are not that uh, generally so healthy for us and that often form a loop where if we do that kind of addictive behavior, that kind of, in order to try to kind of deal with our inner ill ill, um, dis-ease, unease, it can often create more unease 
get us more alienated, more disconnected. And then there can be a stronger desire to do more of that behavior. And sometimes some people get caught in a vicious cycle of it. And so if we know that, that um, you know, I feel lonely or stressed or feel empty inside, that's a condition for getting caught in the hindrances, then we maybe can look in for more healthy ways of meeting that, taking care of that. Are there healthy forms of pleasure and well-being that can fill us? There are things we can do, and there are things we can do. Um, so, or, or ill will. It might be that uh, the uh, conditions for ill will is that we are filled with expectation. And if our expectations are not met, some people get very frustrated and very angry. But they didn't understand how much their expectation was kind of the condition for and how much they were living under expectation. Sometimes expectations weren't reasonable. But we kind of were thinking this is how... So we start seeing how, you know, the conditions by which uh, that give birth to the hindrances. So that also requires us to really take time with them, look at them, be with them, see them, see how they operate, be quiet, calm enough, centered enough in our normal life that we can start tracking what is going on that leads up to them. And then as we get more familiar with how all this works, then it becomes easier to discover how to not to get caught by them, how to step back from them, how to let go of them. I I don't have to do that. I can relax. And we start learning the different techniques we can to kind of settle them. Some of these hindrances are, are dealt with through what's called antidotes. Sometimes people will practice loving kindness when they have a lot of Ill, Ill will or anger. Sometimes people will practice relaxation, practices when they feel a lot of restlessness. Sometimes people will... The classic uh, antidote for sloth and torpor is clarity, clear mindfulness, stronger mindfulness. Really kind of see what's going on here. Try to wake up, brighten up the mind. And an antidote for doubt is to uh, uh, consider what is inspiring for you, um, what you have faith in, and, and kind of somehow settle back in that to help you with your practice further. And then once you've let go of these hindrances, then the last piece of wisdom is how to live so they're less likely to come back. And this might be the most important one. And this is where the delight that arises when the hindrances are not there, the sense of well-being that comes when they're not there, is very important to notice. Even if it's very, very small, the relief of not being caught, um, you know, the absence of the hindrances can feel nice. Take time to feel what it's like not to be caught in the hindrances. Some people are so driven that maybe they work really hard not to be caught by the hindrances, so finally they're free of them. That's nice. But then there's important things to do. (laughs) So they're off to the next thing, the next hindrance, the next desire, the next ill will, because the mind always has to be kept engaged. But to uh, stop, take your time, and sit and have a cup of tea or do something and really feel what it's like to be settled, to be calm, settled, to be free, to be out of debt, to be out of prison, to be out of slavery, all these things that 
which really be here. And allow yourself to be nourished by that, nurtured by it. Let it feed you. Let it register in you what this feels like. Because the more you let it register and feel the goodness, feel the well-being that comes, the more it becomes, uh, uh, more easily you'll recognize it when it's there, the more easy you'll feed it and support it, and the more it'll grow and become more and more present in your life. So it's actually quite useful in, in the Dharma practice to notice how in doing the practice, any way in which doing the practice helps you feel nicer, better. Even if you're just a little bit more calm than you were before, and maybe you're still restless, but you are calmer, appreciate it. Appreciation of, these, of, of, what, of the good things tends to support it to happen more often and stronger next time. But if you don't take time to appreciate it and you're on to the next complaint, <laughs> whatever, then uh, you don't benefit from, from uh, you know, what's happened there. So the fourth foundation of mindfulness has to do, uh, begins with noticing the hindrances. Uh, it's very important for med- meditators because at least in the Buddhist tradition, this is considered that one of the, the primary forces of the mind that get in the way of meditation going deeper. So as you're meditating, you find yourself kind of distracted or caught up in different thoughts and concerns and it's hard to get focused, you might take a look around and see if uh, what's driving the distractibility or driving the, you know, not being present, is it desire? Is it ill will? Is it sloth and torpor? Is it restlessness, agitation, or worry? Or is it doubt? And if one of those five, one of these categories of five, are present and you see it, I'd encourage you to be happy. Not, not happy because you're content that they're there and it's like, let's get into it better, but rather happy that you see it because seeing it is the Dharma door. Seeing it is the step forward to developing the wisdom we want to learn. And so you need to have these hindrances present enough so you can develop wisdom about them. If you're in a hurry to get rid of them because they're rather embarrassing, then you won't learn about them. So look for opportunities. Next time you're meditating and a hindrance comes along, said, finally, great. <laughs> Let me now take a good look at this and start seeing how it operates. Really just kind of be present and see it and uh, understand it. So that in the future, you're less likely to be caught by it. So at some point in the future, uh, you can create the conditions where it doesn't arise at all. And then you're free of those. So we have five minutes or six minutes do you have any questions or comments you'd like to make about that? Yes. Uh, what's a good uh, antidote for greed and desire? What's a good antidote for greed and desire? One of the classic ones in Buddhism uh, is um, 
um, is to cultivate uh, whatever you can do to cultivate good feelings inside your body, to feel contented and happy and well-being. And so you want to, uh, because often desire is desire for some to feel good, but if you can create a healthy feeling of good here, that uh, then there's no need to go out and get it. So meditation is um, a nice, nice activity that uh, is a traditional antidote is generosity. So rather than take and get something, offer. But uh, 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 but then uh, offer, uh, be generous in a way that helps you feel happy, feel really good. Oh, that was a really good thing to do, like a good deed, and then and then let yourself feel the goodness of that. Um, that's one of the classic antidotes. Uh, there are other ones, um, like for uh, uh, sexual lust. Um, sometimes, um, uh, you know, if it's a real problem, um, uh, imagine that the person you have lust for is a skeleton. Or, or, or start, uh, you know, visualizing certain uh, body parts that for which you probably would decrease your lust. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever it takes, <laughs> you know, because because sometimes you know, and you need strong medicine. Otherwise, we get in trouble. And when I was in Thailand practicing there, there was a teacher named Buddha Dasa. Um, he had a kind of a he had a jungle monastery, but in the back corner of the jungle there was a, a kind of a meditation hall. And um, uh, the monks in Thailand often like to have skeletons uh, that they use for this, maybe this, pers- this purpose and other purposes to contemplate death. And, and uh, Catholic monks sometimes also would have do that kind of... And, um, and so he had two skeletons hanging from the rafters, hanging down. Uh, one of them had a sign underneath it and it said, uh, Miss Thailand, 1932. <laughs> 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 so there are these kinds of antidotes. <laughs> Put the mic up here. I've tried some of the antidotes that you talked about. Um, for me, loving kindness works the best. Um, just letting go of the desire to um, have a certain belief about myself. And that was really openness to expansiveness of who I thought I was. Fantastic. Um, you mentioned the antidote for sloth and torpor was clarity. And I was wondering if you could go a little bit deeper into what you meant by clarity of uh-huh. mindfulness. And well, another antidote for sloth and torpor, like if you, in meditation, for example, is to do walking meditation and do it somewhat vigorously. So there's ener- energy builds, for example. And so you kind of break out of it somehow. Uh, another, then the clarity means that uh, brighten the mind. Usually the, the mind is kind of like mud, you know, Swamp, swamp mind, and so you want to, you need to apply more energy of some kind, and so it's mental energy to try to see or brighten the mind to see more clearly, and so you do it in small little, you know, moment-to-moment dosages, 
oh, this is sloth. This is tiredness. This is dullness. I'm really dull. This is what it's like. Oh, it feels so heavy around my eyes. This is a... Just keep looking, keep looking, keep recognizing. Um, and some people find using the mental notes very helpful when there's loss and torpor. Just keep an ongoing, you know, oh, tiredness, heavy, sloth, hearing, touching, feeling. Just kind of note and, and, uh, and maybe pick up even the speed of the noting just to get more energy. And that sometimes will help it to break through. Um, and then for many Americans, it helps a lot if you get enough sleep. Maybe we're kind of a sleep-deprived culture. Diet? Okay. Uh, maybe this is semantics, and Buddhism has a different um, explanation for it, but I find desire to be uh, invigorating, and it brings focus, and uh, I don't particularly feel discomfort desiring something or somebody. I know, uh, so I know someone who's addicted to um, going to see prostitutes. It's very invigorating for him, <laughs> <laughs> and then he, and the, and then he and then he struggles with it and trying to find how to, you know break the cycle and he does and then he somehow goes back and well you could desire also to run a marathon or to be in shape or you yeah. know get another degree and etc. Sure, sure. You know it, it is it is semantics. Um, Buddhism is not anti-desire. The, the the word for the first hindrance is um, one of the there's two different words used for the first hindrance. One of them is uh, being avaricious, so really wanting other people's things. And the other is uh, kamachanda, which is uh, probably better translated as lust. But not just lust, sexual lust, lust for money, lust for anything, kind of strong desire for sensual things. Yeah. Um, but there's all kinds of healthy desires and useful desires. And like I suggested with doing vigorous walking meditation, you have to have desire to undo that. To become free of the hindrances is a desire. So I think having healthy desire in Buddhism is, um, you know, when we tap into what inspires us when we have faith, awakens a strong desire to practice that can sometimes break us out of these kinds of things. So, um, so desire is, in and of it by itself, is not a problem. Okay. It's actually a very important point, and I appreciate you bringing up because how often people hear talks like this and think, oh. Buddhism has a problem with desire. You're not supposed to have any desire at all. And generally, people who have no desire at all are depressed. So, so you know, we're not supposed to, Buddhism is not trying to make it, you know... Uh, another thing I'm finding is that if you detach yourself, actually, from the outcome, sometimes you desire something and you go through the process to get whatever it is that you desire, but sometimes it doesn't work out. And if you're okay with that, it actually it a lot, it's, not, yeah. it's not terrible. Yeah. And if you, uh, if you really enjoy doing more than getting or succeeding, um, then uh, you can always be happy if you do. I'm a little bit like that. You know, I, I like doing things and, uh, and uh, more than succeeding because I'm happy to succeed. Uh, but then, I, then, I'm, then once I've succeeded, then, then I just let it go. And it kind of is like the water washes off the boat and disappears and 
then I'm on to the next thing that I like to do. <laughs> Thanks. So we should stop. I don't want to keep people, a captive audience here. So it's after nine o'clock. So thank you all very much.